This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Do you feel hopeless about climate change and the damage we are doing to our planet? I did. But then I was shown a new way to look at the problem, which made the solution so obvious and so within reach. A solution that's right under our feet. Climate change is all about too much carbon in our atmosphere, but carbon's not our enemy. It's the building block of life. Everything alive is made of it. It's us. The problem and the solution are simply a matter of balance. Let's step back and look at the five pools of where carbon is stored on planet Earth. Starting about 500 million years ago, when plants appeared on land, carbon began to cycle in an amazing balance, a balance that allowed for life as we know it to evolve. Then one life form, us, figured out how to extract carbon from the fossil pool. Then we burned it for energy, putting it into play, disrupting that balance. The way we manage land and do agriculture is moving even more carbon from the soil and biosphere into the atmosphere. Specifically, we've moved 880 gigatons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which is heating up the planet and destabilizing our climate. Now the oceans have absorbed a lot of this excess carbon, which is resulting in ocean acidification and accelerating a mass extinction of sea life. So in order to save life as we know it, of course, we have to stop releasing fossil carbon. The big question is, where do we put this excess carbon to get this cycle back into balance? Well, remember when I said that the solution is right under our feet? It literally is. It's the soil. Plants with sunlight and water perform photosynthesis. They pull in carbon from the air and turn it into carbohydrates, sugars, Then they pump some of those sugars down through their roots to feed microorganisms who use that carbon to build soil. Voila, carbon moved. Plants pump it in and soil stores it. Nature's living technology is amazing. Scientists have recently discovered that applying a thin layer of compost sets up an ongoing positive feedback loop that brings more and more carbon into the soil each year. In concert with other regenerative practices like not tilling the soil, planting trees, cover crops, and planned grazing, we can build and retain gigatons of soil carbon. This is carbon farming. This is regenerative agriculture. And there is nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. Unlike more carbon in the atmosphere, more carbon in the ground is good for us. It makes healthy soil, which is nutrient-rich, full of life, and holds way more water. This means more nutritious food and crops that are more resilient in the face of drought. That's good news for farmers, families, and everyone that eats. Remember this. The way we grow our food, fiber, and fuel either puts carbon up into the atmosphere or it pulls it down into the ground. The regeneration of soil is the task of our generation. Our health, the health of our soils, 
and the health of our planet are one and the same. Well, that was the soil story, and you can see that at thesoilstory.com. And we want to welcome you all to Soil Matters. And this is part of the Future Thought Leaders forums that are put on by my foundation, the Berry Good Food Foundation, where we try to connect eaters and farmers and help people understand the implications, the larger implications of the food choices they make. Now, I want to talk to you before I introduce my panel, some of whom actually are responsible for that video you just watched. I, I really want to thank UCSD for giving us this forum today, for providing this venue, and I really also want to thank them for um, permitting us, uh, giving us permission to bring the food in that we brought today, and, and you can thank the people that you can see on the stage up there. The food was donated by local farms. Um, it was prepared by local chefs and volunteers, and we wanted you to really, we think that food is the connection between uh, this community and the environmental issues that we are talking about today, and um, we want you to be able to taste that as well and taste how wonderful that is. And I want to thank my sponsors as well uh, as Berry Good Food Foundation. We have Kiss the Ground, who is responsible in part for the video you saw, and we also have Keith Pizzoli's organization. And so we're going to start, and I'm going to introduce Keith as my first panelist on the far right. Keith is the Director of Field Research and Urban Studies, the planning program here at UCSD. Uh, he is the, his, his, focus, his research focuses on sustainability, science, and how human and nature relations interact. Um, he is uh, very active in uh, urban development, uh, environmental issues here on campus. So thank you very much, Keith, for joining us, and thanks for sponsoring the event tonight. Next is Scott Murray, and Scott Murray is a local organic farmer and also a research, uh, excuse me, a resource conservationist. So Scott wears many hats, and we're happy to have him, and he's, he's also been a public servant on, um, you know, focused on conservation, and we're, we're really happy to have him here. Immediately on my right is Ryland Engelhart. He is the owner, the CIO Yep, sorry, of <laughs> Cafe Gratitude, which you may know here in San Diego, and they have several up and down the coast. He's also one of the co-founders of Kiss the Ground, and uh, he's a wonderful guy, and we're really happy to have him. He's the one who brought me into this issue, so I thank him a lot for that. On my left, we have Kala, the wonderful Kala, and Kala is responsible for writing and creating the soil story, which opened our panel today. I'm pretty excited by that. Uh, Kala uh, works in climate change policy and now is really uh, spending her energy and focus on soil and, and farming as it relates to climate change issues. Next on the left, we have Pablo Rojas. Pablo is a rancher at Mogor in the Valle de Guadalupe down in Baja. Uh, you might know them for their wine or their restaurants, but they're an incredible ranch. And he uses holistic uh, land management practices to really try to restore the land to its, its highest purpose. Um, next to Pablo, we have Dr. Justine Owen. Justine is a, yes, okay, you've got fans in the house, all right. Uh, <laughs> I like that you're clapping for the soil scientist. Okay, that's what she is. <laughs> <laughs> 
she is a soil scientist at UC uh, Berkeley, and she's doing incredible research, and you're going to hear a lot about that today. And that is how carbon storage in soils is affected by the characteristics of that soil, as well as the land management practices that Pablo engages in. So we'll be very excited to hear more about that. And finally, a man who also needs no introduction, we have David Bronner, and he is the CEO of Dr. Bronner's Madrid Soap. Yes, they're in the back. Yes. (laughs) And I like uh, that his title, he is the CEO, but he calls himself the Cosmic Engagement Officer, and I appreciate that. Uh, (laughs) His company was one of the first to really sign on to the USDA Organic Certification Program, and I really think that began his activism and his company's activism, and he's been involved in many issues, and I think recently has come to the soil issue, and something you might not have known about David Bronner, you might know his incredible company, you might know his activism, you may not have known that he also is a scientist and has a biology degree from Harvard, which is a pretty impressive fact, so... Let's, uh, let's start this off. There's lots to talk about today. And really, ultimately, let's start with the first role that soil plays because something that maybe you don't know right off the bat is how alive soil is in its, in its best state. That a handful of soil, really a tablespoon of soil, has more microorganisms in it than there are human beings on the planet. Just wrap your head around that if you're not a soil scientist. And I really want to hear more about that. So I'm going to start with Justine, our soil scientist. So talk to me a little bit about what is soil? What, what's in it? Why is it alive? I mean, what's happening there? Well, soil, when you think of soil, you probably think of brown stuff that you walk on. But there's mineral components, which are the sand, the clay, silt particles, and then There's all of this organic matter. There's also air and water. And this combination supports an incredible diversity of microorganisms and small insects and all sorts of things working in the soil. And the greater biodiversity of organisms that you have in the soil, then you have a much wider function and a more resilient soil. And so um, managing soil health, there's a great quote from a farmer in Southern California who says that microbes are the tiniest little livestock we have. And it's a great thing to think about because um, he originally started off, as most farmers do, thinking, I am growing plants. But really, then he had that shift in thinking and said, no, I'm, I'm growing microbes that are growing my plants for me. And so... Um, trying to to support those microbes and and all of the functions that they do in the soil is really kind of the foundation of soil health. That's excellent. And I I know, Scott, we talked about this a little bit before the show and this afternoon, and I really want to have you expand on that a little bit, just about what does it mean for soil to be alive and and as a a farmer uh, and a conservationist, tell me what that means for you. Well, I think the, the real key is that soil is alive, thus we can be alive. And we have, in our current uh, practices, we've pretty much forgotten that fact. We've uh, learned that if we drench things with lots of chemicals, um, there's an acceptable level of risk. Hmm. Um, But the problem is that there are consequences which we plan, and there are unintended consequences which we, we don't really understand the outcome of. And one of the key things that we're seeing in our society today is nutrition and nutrition-related diseases. Uh, a doctor friend of mine tells me that 80% of human health issues come through the mouth. 10% is accident and 10% is genetic. Now, I don't know exactly how accurate that is, but I think it's pretty close. 
So we're now experiencing an abundance of food, but an, a, a lack of nutrition from that food. So we see people that are overweight, but their bodies are actually starving to death because they're not getting essential nutrients. So I'm an organic farmer. My work is about enlivening the soil and providing all of the building blocks for healthy nutrition in the soil such that the plants that I grow from seed or cuttings or transplants can express their full genetic potential. And that's actually where our human nutrition comes from, is we need that full genetic potential. Because to think about supplementing our nutrition from a pill sounds to me a lot like soil and green. Um, the other fact about soil is it holds moisture. So for every 1% of organic matter in an acre of soil, we can hold 16,500 gallons of water. And right now, the average chemical conventional agricultural soil is about a half a percent. And the folks that are farming organically for 10 years or more are up around 5%. They can hold almost 100,000 gallons of water in an acre of soil. I think that's important right now. We all know why. So I come at this as an urban and bioregional planner. So probably like the rest of you, learning about the microbiome in the soil is, is kind of a new thing. But I want to just expand on that a little bit because it is a profound sort of um, new way of thinking about the soil. Um, one of the things that we're doing um, in, the, in, the, in our region is helping uh, lower-income communities struggling to get good, healthy food on the table, plant community gardens, and food forests. But if you're going to be doing that in an area that might be contaminated, where the soil is contaminated, you want to do some testing. So we've really learned the ropes on how to do testing of soil. And it's expensive, and it's not very accurate, and the results are hard to interpret. And for the most part, it's about a particular toxicant in the soil, and if there's this much lead, is it going to screw me up or what? But what's happening with the microbial perspective is take something like Roundup. Is the sort of nasty ingredient in that glyphosate going to impact you directly as a toxicant? Not so much. That's now what we're beginning to understand is that the plants and the soil are living in interactive kind of ecosystems with little miniature livestock, and it's really quite extraordinary. And the glyphosate actually impacts the microbial community itself. And when you do that in the soil and the plants, that's going to actually begin to affect the microbial communities in your gut. And that's where people are thinking this might even have something to do with obesity and other kinds of disease outcomes. So we're really in a different world. I thought you did an excellent job on the, on the video, and I'll stop there. You know what, I'm glad that you uh, pointed Kala out because I think you added some things today. When, we, when Scott was mentioning the nutritional value of produce today than in prior times in terms of what it is we're getting, the, the methods that we're using to farm that um, aren't necessarily building the soil, um, they might produce, but what are we getting? Right, so I'm not an expert on this, but uh, I know enough to be dangerous. Um, there's, you know, they say the orange that you eat today maybe has a quarter of the nutrition that your grandmother's orange had. And that really is about loss of nutrients in the soil. And um, why I think carbon is so important in the soil is that it's really the building block upon which other things um, stick. So you get carbon in the soil, you get water. 
once you have more carbon, more water, you have um, more nitrates that can be available, or excuse me, more nutrients that can be available to the plants. And people will say, well, conventional agriculture is bad and organic is good. And that's not really the conversation we're having. What we're having is a conversation that's about soil health. And it's about keeping that carbon in the ground. Um, things like plowing pull it up. Uh, and things like chemicals may destroy that soil biology as well and do destroy it. But really the conversation that we're having here is not just about plant growth and what we put on the plants to grow them, but how we manage the environment in which the plants live. Because plants pull in nutrients through their roots, and the more diverse and strong and more microfibers their roots have on them, the more nutrients they pull in. So we're really talking about a shift in paradigm that's about managing for soil health. And um, you can have organic farms that don't manage for soil health, uh, but you have many that do. Actually, I was just reminded by the first tweet of the night to, to let you know and to remind you that we're taking questions by Twitter. Just uh, hashtag soil matters, and we're watching them right now. So by all means, uh, send in your questions to the panel. We'll make sure that they, they get asked to the best of our ability. We should have asked this to begin with. We, we know who we invited and who we all reached out to, but I'd love to really have a better understanding. Uh, raise your hand if you're a student in the audience. Okay, good. I'm glad we got some students in the house. Yes. And uh, science, uh, urban planning, communications, a mixture? Okay, I see some hands. All right. And then we have uh, community members, right? If you're not a farmer, rancher, or activist, you just live here and want to learn about dirt. Okay, great. And that makes me very happy. And then I know we have some folks who are focused on composting and waste and activists. Raise your hand if you're in that category. Yes. Woo. Okay. That's fantastic. Oh, city people. Yeah, that's right. We have some city people as well. Okay, it's hard for us to see out there. Uh, well, good. I'm glad. I, I love that. You know, it helps us understand, you know, who we're talking to in terms of your knowledge. If we say something you already know, then we may be saying it for the person sitting next to you. But if there's something you want to add or you want us to, to bring up that we haven't already, by all means, tweet it in and we'll, we'll make sure that we bring it up in conversation. So, um, you know what? Let me, let, me, let me hand it over to my friend Rylan here. You want to talk a little bit more about why soil matters before we even get to just as an organism habitat before we even get to the other hats and other roles that it plays. So the question to me is, what, why does soil matter? Well, that's a big question. That's the purpose of the whole panel. But right now, we're just focused on soil for soil's sake, not uh, in terms of waste recycling, not in terms of water. We're going to get into that in a minute. And not in terms of the ultimate question, which is its role in carbon uh, mitigation or sequestering in terms of climate change mitigation, but just anything else you want to add on soil generally before we get on to the next three? Well, soil is the, from, again, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a scientist. I'm not uh, a farmer per se. I am a soil enthusiast who learned a piece of information that changed my life. And now I have deeply been inspired and study soil and all its valuable implications on all of our lives. And my life's work is to communicate it in a digestible way so that people can be inspired and have the aha moment that I had. And that's why we created the soil story. Uh, really, soil, it, it, I mean, soil is the earth. It is uh, humus. Uh, you know, it, it is the skin of the earth. It is the the thing that all of our all the nourishment that sustains our life or the majority of our, the nourishment that sustains our life comes from. And I, for many years, even though 
I ran an organic vegan restaurant, I didn't relate to it as this space to have so much reverence for until I started to understand its uh, importance. And what I started to see was that as humanity, we've been extracting as if it's a bank account, a nutritional bank account for many, many years, and that most civilizations have failed because they were having a degenerative relationship with soil. Uh, For instance, the uh, Sahara Desert being the breadbasket of the Roman Empire and, you know, the Middle East being the Fertile Crescent. Um, And that, you know, I think Roosevelt said, a nation that destroys their soil destroys themselves. And so I I saw the importance of it and the opportunity of it, and I've made my life about uh, sharing its value and uh, its opportunity. Thank you. Actually, and, and Ryland is the one who brought this really to my attention, certainly in terms of the role that soil can play in climate change mitigation. And I know he also brought it to, to your attention, uh, David. You want to talk about how you got interested in, in soil? Sure. Um, yeah, you know, I think the, the point's been made here that, you know, that to really appreciate that soil is a living membrane um, that sustains us and, you know, healthy sto- soil is healthy for human health and ecosystem health. And we are running down this finite resource. Um, it needs to be replenished, sustained, regenerated. And, you know, we're, we're extracting it. You know, we're basically killing the soil, uh, farming the way we are. You know, we're, we're on this chemical treadmill where we're, you know, putting these synthetic fertilizers, nitrogen fertilizers, and pesticides, herbicides, insecticides, fungicides. And, you know, and, it, and the, the soil is getting more and more unhealthy, more and more depleted and degraded so that more and more chemicals are being used to bring these unhealthy crops to harvest. Um, And, you know, this is like, you know, in in addition, we're like losing a third of the excess carbon in the atmosphere is from mismanaged soil. Um, You know, I came at this more from just kind of, you know, restoring soil fertility for healthy food and, you know, stopping the spraying of of systemic pesticides um, or, or use of systemic pesticides uh, and, and spraying pesticides on farm workers and our foods, the residues, and, you know, just getting more healthy, natural food system. And then, um, you know, so we are already doing this. And then, you know, I'd heard about the, the you know, carbon sequestering potential of soil and hadn't quite got my head around it, didn't understand how huge of a sink and how huge of a solution it is. And, you know, Ryland was instrumental and Kara through this, you know, this, uh, this short piece along with a lot of other kind of heroes in the soil movement that are, you know, it's just, it's one of these things that like once you do get this aha movement, it's uh, a, a aha moment, there's only two places where this excess carbon dioxide can go. I mean, there's only two sinks, and that's the soil and reforesting. So, I mean, and, and the soil just has a huge, I mean, a, a third of that carbon is from mismanaged soil, and we can put it back there. Um, I don't want to get ahead of our, our panel. So. No, that's great. I mean, I, look, everybody up here is obviously passionate about this subject, and it's something that really hasn't necessarily been talked about uh, at every level. And, you know, it, it, it almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? If, if really the answer to climate change is the dirt beneath our feet, well, what are we not doing right? So, Justine, is it, is it too good to be true that soil might, you know, be the answer to all our problems? <laughs> no, it, it really is a win-win situation. Um, and... So to give you a, a sense of scale of kind of the problem and, and the solution that we have available to us, the IPCC has estimated that for the last decade, 
we've been emitting about eight and a half gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere through fossil fuel burning. And if you're not familiar with a gigaton, um, a gigaton of carbon would weigh about the same as 100 million elephants um, or 6 million blue whales. And if you're, if you're uncomfortable with big mammal units, um, you, can BMUs. Of, um, <laughs> you can also think of it as um, equivalent to every passenger car in the U.S. driving its normal amount for three years. That's a gigaton of carbon. So, so we're emitting globally about eight and a half gigatons. And the soil, if we stopped the management practices that cause soil to lose carbon and we maximize the practices that cause it to gain carbon, we could actually offset about half of those fossil fuel emissions. So we do have to decrease our fossil fuel emissions, but soil really helps us along the way. Half of our fossil fuel emissions could be resolved by simply, you know, maximizing the role that soil plays so that it's doing its job to the best of its ability. That's a pretty astounding number. It does almost sound too good to be true, but your science backs that. And that's the work that you do in your research. And, and tell me about the other research that's happening in your lab. Yeah. So in our, our research group, we've been looking a lot at rangelands because they're a big um, area in globally. They cover 30% of the land surface. Um, and in California, they're also about 30% of the land surface. And the rangelands in California have been used pretty hard. Um, they've been subjected to a major vegetation shift and going from the perennial grasses and, and uh, kind of native plants that used to be there, we've switched them to mostly annual grasses now. And that, just by itself, that's released, ended up releasing a lot of carbon from the soil. On top of that, we've had a lot of overgrazing. And so my, the group that I've been working with, we've been looking at how can we reverse that. And one of the, the exciting things is we found, as it said in the film, adding just a half inch of compost um, increased not only soil carbon, um, but soil moisture significantly. And more exciting for the, the, the rancher whose land we were working on, it doubled the amount of grass that was growing. Because the compost, not only is it a source of organic um, carbon, but it's also a fertilizer. And so um, it, was, it was a win-win because not only did the farmer get more forage production, happier cows, they actually hung out more on the plots that had had the compost added to them. There's a great picture of all the cows concentrating on the three plots that had compost, and then they're kind of scattered on the other ones. And so the cows know when, when the land is managed well. Jump in. Oh, sorry, on what Justine said. So the group Justine works with is the Marin Carbon Project, and um, I had the fortune of working with them as well. Um, we're jumping over here a little bit to climate change, but I'm going to go ahead and do it because we're talking about what we're passionate all, all, about. It seems all roads lead there, so it's okay. Um, we can talk about mycorrhizal fungi and how amazing they are later. Um, <laughs> so There's a side panel on that after. <laughs> side panel. Side panel. It turns out cooperation, not competition, is what uh, creates species diversity. So Darwin um, can be rewritten. But we'll go there later. So I was in climate policy for about 10 years. I worked um, under Gavin Newsom in the city and county of San Francisco for six of those, writing their climate action plan. 
and uh, in Colorado before that. And I've seen a lot of things come through the door. And a lot of people knock on the door and they say, we have this amazing solution to climate change. You should hear about it. You've got to listen. And some of them are pretty great. Um, but I watched the Marin Carbon Project for five years, and I have to say I'd never seen anything as great as that. And that's because the research that they did really was a game changer because it showed that you could essentially catalyze or turn on this vast sink, which is the grasslands of the world, by just giving it a little compost. And that compost basically acts as a food for the soil and holds more water, like we said. And then you turn on this thing where you have a net gain every year, like the movie said, of carbon into the ground. And so that is pretty much the best thing I've ever heard because as a systems thinker, we, and uh, Danella Meadows is one of the people I learned a lot from, you look for points in the system. They're called leverage points, or maybe some people refer to them as acupuncture points. And you say, where's a point where I can change one thing and there will be a cascade of positive benefits that occur around this thing? Um, And compost and soil and the link between those two things is this incredible point where if you shift it, all of these amazing things happen, upstream and downstream. So upstream, that food waste that was going to the landfill and creating methane, those dairy slurries that were sitting there emitting nitrous oxide, they get managed correctly. They get turned into compost. It goes onto the ground. It replaces synthetic fertilizer, which is contaminating the water tables in the Central Valley and the air. And it's just making it as really nasty business. And then the grass grows and the grass has more nutrition in it and the cows like it better and it's more resilient to drought and it's good for the farmers and it's it's really it's good for everyone and then on top of that you get carbon sequestered so you start to draw down atmospheric carbon and on top of that as the soil holds more water more water returns to the whole system because the plants become more alive so you begin to manage these things from a bigger cycle perspective I think that is all I'm going to say, and I'm going to be really quiet from here on out. Actually, that is the perfect segue to the second role. Yes, thank you. That was awesome. We want to get her fired up to say something, you know, keep talking like that. But that's the perfect segue to the second role that we talk about that soil plays, and that is a, a waste recycler. And that's exactly what compost is. Look, in nature... Uh, you know, the, the earth covers itself with a blanket of debris to protect this viable resource underneath. But, you know, whenever we, you know, interject ourselves into the process, compost is, is the way that we do the same thing. And so that is the segue. And I want to talk about compost. And specifically, that's actually the first question we have from the audience. And it is, you know, people want to know what can they do? What can everyone in the audience do to address this big issue of bringing our soil back to health? And, and I think compost and the process of creating, generating, using, um, applying compost is the answer to that. So I'd love to hear a little bit from you again on compost. And then I want to talk, Pablo, I want you to speak up about how, you know, you use that process of, of regenerating the soil. So Justine and anyone else, by the way, this is a dialogue. Anyone else wants to chime in on compost, but because all, what we really want to do is talk about compost and then answer the question, which is, what can everyone else do? What can everyone do? Mm-hmm. And so compost, I mean, it's great if you can do it yourself or if you can get your municipal system to do it for you. And one of the exciting things is, like, with the, the results that we had with the Marine Carbon Project, um, we have enough compost or we have enough raw material out there. We just need to get it into the right places and 
actually compost it, keep it out of landfills, which are a huge methane source and another important greenhouse gas. Um, and one of the neat things is um, some people have said, well, you can't spread compost all over all the rangelands in California. That's crazy. And we say, absolutely. Like, there's access issues. It's a lot of trucks, and we, we, we don't want to do that. But... Of helicopters, we'll, we'll take them. <laughs> yes, helicopters are helpful. Um, but what's neat is, say we could do this over a quarter of the state of Cal, or a quarter of the rangelands in California, and we have enough compost to do that, and put on that that half a inch of so, of compost onto them. That depending on what rate of carbon sequestration you get, how much carbon is staying in the soil that could offset anywhere between all of the um, emissions from cows enteric fermentation. They, they belch methane in the state of California, and we're the biggest dairy state um, in the nation. So that would be a huge benefit. If we actually end up sequestering more, that would offset all commercial energy for, for a year. So compost has great power to, to um, off, offset our emissions and in benefit the soil and and the rangelands. Well, I like the idea of putting cows to, to good use, and I think that's what you do. Um, there's another way to deal with the the grasslands is to, to make them rangelands, right, the way it used to be in the, the natural process of creating compost. So tell us about how you do what you do, Pablo, down in at El Mogor Ranch. I'm kind of in, a, in the same way I'm doing a compost, but instead of doing it, controlling all the variables and then putting the water and all the green stuff. I just move my animals through different rangelands, and I am able to take it where the compost cannot be taken. Um, so you concentrate your animals in, in, this, in high intensity. You browse the brush, you eat all the grasses, and the animals poop and pee all over the place, and basically that uh, has all the... Um, all the, the hot stuff that you put in the compost, so it starts uh, uh, decomposing. All the microbes that are not there because all the, so- the soil is barren and, 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 and dead, it's dirt. So um, animals are necessary for that, and uh, one of the, the biggest realizations I had is um, last year I had, had my first trip up north in Northern California, and it's funny because it's the same weather that we get but I got to Mendocino County where they get the 40 inches of rain. Um, so compared to our 10 on average that we get, I was like, oh, 40, that's, that's where you should be. <laughs> and, um, and then as you're driving up north, you start getting all the 15 and the 20 inches, 25, whatever, and everybody's complaining about the lack of water. I was like, okay, I got 10 and you got 40 and... I got 35, I'd be pretty happy. But, but people are still complaining. And then you get there, and I was like, they got the same crappy grasses that I have. And they're, all, they're just twice the size of my grasses. So my realization was it's not about the water, and it doesn't matter if you get more rain, you're still going to get the crappy annual grasses. So it's got to be something else. Um, and that's what I kind of noticed is we need those we need the livestock because we don't have any wild animals anymore we don't have the mammoths that used to be here um 
you have two options. Either you hurt your animals. I mean, you can set up fence, but it's expensive and it's ugly and it rips your shirts. So it's not nice. Uh, or you could, uh, you could use li- livestock and herd it. And that's, and you're creating jobs for people and you can hire, you know, get a bunch of farmers that can get all their animals together and hire someone to herd their animals on public lands. So you can restore the land and you can have more animals than what you have in your tiny piece of land um that yeah that's great no thank you well you know pablo's talking about something the way things happened in nature with the blanket of leaves and animals roaming you know that was the the original compost generator right and we now have to create our own and whether it's through the techniques he's talking about or or Compost creating in your home, in your community, and so on and so forth. Any of these ways in, in which we can restore the soil. And I, I know, David, that you, you're engaged in a little compost making yourself at your business. Uh, yeah, I mean, compost is key to, you know, especially in organic, regenerative farming. I mean, it's everything. Um, and, yeah, we've seen, you know, our yields, you know, increase by 50, sometimes 100% with our farmers working with, like, best organic practices and spreading compost. Um, you know, we have mass, that's, we have fair trade projects and it's overlaid on the organic. And one, one big part of our fair trade premium is to, um, subsidize compost for all our, you know, uh, thousands of farmers. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I, I want to jump in a little, cause I, I know the, like the, the uh, uh, cows grazing. I mean, this was a, I'm vegan, Michelle's vegan. I mean, this, this was something to get my head around. So, I mean, you know, how many people have seen that cowspiracy? And, you know, so, you know, I mean, there's, there's a difference that needs to be drawn between CAFOs and grain-fed, you know, sh- shooting GMO grain. And Say what CAFOs are. Most people probably don't oh, know. Confined animal Everybody in the audience operations. here know what a CAFO, CAFO is? Yeah. No? Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, it's a factory farm. And, and basically, it's like we're, we're taking animals off their original, um, you know, rangelands, putting them in a, in a, in a factory and force-feeding them grain that they aren't even evolved to eat um and it's you know in the in the footprint of the fertilizer and and water and pesticides on this grain and is just enormous and it's a complete waste whereas uh when you're actually uh, doing holistic grazing and you know it's grass-fed uh cattle and ruminants i mean this is how the topsoil in the in the rangelands and the prairie and the savannah evolved in the first place it was large herbivores interacting with these grasslands with, with predator, you know, in, in high-density ways, with predator pressure, uh, moving them along. And this is what Pablo is doing, is he's, you know, he's basically duplicating these natural systems. Um, so. uh, one of the other things, uh, the benefits of this is that I like the, the idea of, of, of um, planning what you want out of the vegetation. You got, this, you got goats, you got sheep, you got cattle got all this different livestock that uh, you can use to basically shape the vegetation that you need. So if, um, for example, I could benefit from over-browsing all the jojobas from my ranch, but I would run out of fall feed. So I'm going to wait, and then I can let all the grasses grow. So once you got you got restoring the soil, then you got to choose, okay, what is the vegetation that I want? And what are the consequences if you only have grass, even if it's a grassland and, you know, we sequester all this carbon, wow. But we don't have, uh, I don't know, uh, brush for quail or deer. So those, there are consequences of what we're doing. So you, if you're there, you can, if you can hurt your animals and you're moving them, 
you can choose vegetation that you want. You can have as diverse vegetation and therefore as diverse community as possible and nutrients and so on and so forth. And, and remember that you're not, you mentioned this earlier, and, and you did as well, Justine, that you're not just, um, you know, fertilizing the foil, uh, soil and, and, and providing that, but you're also stimulating growth, plant growth, right? And because, th- what, what does that do? How does that work? Well, uh, in terms of grasses, uh, if, especially perennial grasses, if they are not uh, grazed, for the most of them, they will die. All the growth will uh, cover uh, the basal buds. So sunlight can't get in, and eventually the grass dies. And recently I read or heard that uh, when you graze grasses, I don't know about brush, the roots exudate uh, carbohydrates and that feed the, the, the fauna in the soil fauna. And, uh, well, that's carbon right there. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah and you want to can add I, anything to that? Oh, sorry, go that. ahead, please. Um, can you, I just want to describe something. Can you hold this microphone for me? So... Again, this is this is my understanding of it, but essentially, uh, what as above is below. So if there's grass and there's a root system, this grass is as tall as my fingers, and it's underground. It's about the same in root um, length. And so when the cows come along and they eat that down to about this, the roots die back to about this, and then... When there's, when there's poop and pee on that, it stimulates this new growth. And so this explosion of new growth, then it creates an explosion of you know, carbohydrates being sent into the, into the soil kingdom. And you actually turn this grassland into a carbon pump that's capturing CO2, pumping it down. And then it gets you know, eaten down again and it grows up really quickly. So you're essentially in grassland with corresponding cows. You're actually creating a carbon pump with these perennial grasses. I think that deserves a round of applause, that little demonstration right there. <laughs> the carbon pump, I love that. Rylan, do that again with your hands. Do it again. It's just you. Okay, so, so grasses, the thing is actually like their roots are like this. There's like another two. Yeah, so it's, it's much so you may see this little bit on top, but their, their roots can be like 8 feet, 10 feet, 20. Even the huge, these perennial grasses have these root systems that are just ginormous, which is why they're so good at storing carbon in the soil. You should try filming a, a documentary with Ryland where you're like, don't put your hands back in the corner like this. <laughs> I think Scott wants to say something. Our organic farmer here on the panel. Well, two parts of that. Um, one of the key things, as, as the ruminants graze the grass, the organic matter that's shed from the roots is stabilized in the soil and is building the soil organic matter. It's not lost. It's feeding the soil biology. It makes it available to the soil biology. And so it thrives, which is what we're looking for. Um, But I wanted to go back to the question from the audience. What can you do at home? And there are ways that you can mimic this process very easily. And what I always recommend to people is choose a small area to work with. And trim back your shrubs, for example, that or your rose bushes that are growing, and chop those things up and put them right under the plant. You know, and if you if you have some compost or you bring in some compost, um, feed the plant and then cover it with that organic matter. So the organic matter is, in a sense, doing the same thing as if the animals are are taking it. You're not taking it far. You're putting it right down. Then that organic matter is on the soil. It's going to slowly break down, feed the soil. It's going to hold the moisture in the soil and improve the whole cycle of activity. So the number one thing you can do, and this will also help the city dramatically, is any organic matter that comes through your home either in the kitchen as, as food waste 
or in your garden as trimmings, put them back on your soil. Put them on the soil and they will make a huge difference in your soil. And then that can help us as the city meet our zero waste plan where we want to take all those greens out of the soil. And instead of requiring a big industry and compost yards, you can do it and you can do it in five minutes or ten minutes and then that's done for that one plant. And then watch what happens to that plant because it may have been sort of standing still for a while. It's going to thrive because you gave it some love and attention and treated it with some organic matter. Yeah, go ahead, Keith. So I'd like to give a, an academic perspective, a sort of university perspective. We are actually sitting right now in one of the great research institutions of the world, not just UCSD, but the UC system as a whole. And part of the role of science is to make the invisible visible or to shine light where value really exists. It should be that way anyway. Science is a little bit run amok. We'll come back to that later maybe. But Justine's example of the way she tells her story with visual imagery is she's a great science communicator. And we need much more of that. I'm still trying to get the six million whales out of my head. But... Um, but one of the ways which we can deal with is like what people can do, and we have in our audience here the uh, San Diego Food Systems Alliance, and they're doing a really good job getting people to begin to think about food waste reduction and recovery. And when you think about all the food that we waste, you, we, we can reduce that, and recovering it can be done through composting. That's one thing. First, you want to get it into hungry mouths, people, animals, composting, then perhaps turn it into biogas, uh, biogas and fuel. So what's going on at the university? And I'd like to sort of call out some students that are involved in this. First of all, this campus wastes one ton of food a day. One ton of food a day. And there are people on this campus that are trying to sort of mobilize around creating a biodigester that can turn some of that into energy. Not far-fetched. UC Davis is already doing that, Right? But we also have students, you should know, a stone's throw from here on land on this campus doing an experimental design of different ways of composting. So they're studying the work of the little red wriggler worms compared to black fly composting, compared to other types. So there's that going on. And I'll just end with this thought that I think a big part of what we need to do is begin to democratize science and technology again by encouraging our youth and, and the students that are coming through this institution to get real about focusing their research on stuff that matters like soil. And I think we have a role to play in that. There is an effort right now, uh, just one final point, because I think this really highlights how important soil has become. The UC system as a whole, there are 10 campuses, right? Santa Barbara, Berkeley, San Diego, so forth and so on. Merced, yeah, you can list them all better than I there's also three national labs, and there's the Agricultural and Natural Resources Extension. This entity is arguably one of the most you know, formidable. And so the president of this entire conglomerate stepped up recently and said, what can we do about climate change? And thus began an effort from faculty, 50 faculty from across the 10 campuses, the Agricultural and Natural Resources Extension, and the labs to say something meaningful about climate change. The guy that led this report, and it's still, a, it's still a, a something in motion, actually influenced the Pope. How many of you have seen the Pope's encyclical 
and what he says about climate change. And right, it's a moral issue. This pope is also a very good communicator. But this report, and there's a point I want to make about soil in this. This report, at first, didn't really have the biotic in it. In other words, it was a report on what we can do about climate change through better photovoltaics, increased battery storage life, you know, uh, more improved forms of energy through fuel cells and chillers and so forth and so on. But here, I'm, as the planner and others were saying, well, you know, Trees have already been, uh, one of my colleagues, let's not forget trees don't need to be invented. Let's not be looking entirely for the magic bullet, right? And so we lobbied to get a biotic perspective in it. And much to the credit of this group, there was a maturation in the collective thinking. And now, in the 10 solutions, it includes food waste reduction and recovery. It includes forestation and reforestation. And there's actually going to be a separate challenge on this. And it includes soil as a carbon sequester. So I just want to mention that's a... I want to say, I want to follow up one thing really quick. I'm glad that you mentioned uh, Food Systems Alliance and Zero Waste. There's a conference on the 23rd that Zero Waste puts on. I encourage you to attend if you want to find out more about what you can do uh, in in composting. Um, This panel, our organization, will be having another of these future thought leaders uh, forums in May, and that will be on food waste. And then the Food Systems Alliance has their conference on the same subject. So we're really trying to bring the message to you in multiple forums throughout the year uh, to really try to, to make a difference in, in this community. So I encourage you to do that. Um, I also want to answer, I want to bring up one of the questions that was asked and take it to you. I'm sorry, were you going to follow up something first and then I'll ask the question? Okay. Can I just do one, yep. one other quick shout out to... We also have the Global Action Research Center here, Paul Watson. Paul has been running, has been creating uh, access for scientists in southeastern San Diego and have been running workshops on why soil matters and getting the kids looking at the bugs in the soil and we're tracking. I, I'll, I'll leave it there. But I, and there's workshops. If you want to know more about them, there's Paul. Maybe raise your hand, Paul. Yeah, there's, there, there's a lot happening in our community you might not know about. So, yes, thank you. So um, for our farmer on the panel, we have a question from a farmer, and the question is, how can farmers use more compost, right, really engage in composting as far as part of their technique without worrying about uh, gap, food safety, runoff issues that could come with using compost? So that's an interesting question. I think you might have an answer, and maybe others on the panel as well. So I'd love to hear that. Yeah, many people want to answer, so no shortage of answers. There's two parts. Um, It's a key and critical question because we are seeing that pathogen pathways are being accelerated and people are getting sick eating food in all sorts of different places. Um, It used to be that this was a small thing that we noticed on occasion, you know, this certain restaurant, people would have gastritis afterwards. But now that we've changed our food system where a lot of the fresh produce is being handled and packaged, there are more vector points for pathogen attachment to this process, and it's gotten to be a very tricky thing. But we'll return it back to the farm. The key in using... um, Monsanto has a very cool advertising hook where they say organic agriculture uses dirty things like compost. And I I look at that and I go, hmm, I I once did a project in Rancho Santa Fe to put compost on an organic uh, lemon orchard. We had to do a scent um, 
analysis for their artistic development committee. They wanted to know what it was going to smell like. So here I was showing bags of compost and putting them under everybody's noses. Well, if it's properly composted to our national organic standard, and it started with a potential pathogen source like a cow's great poop, well, the national organic standard talks about bringing that compost together, um, processing it in a way that it reaches a critical temperature of at least 160 degrees six times over a six-week period, and then that compost can be certified for use in organic agriculture directly. And what they mean by that is we could apply that compost, and in the same week we could harvest the crop. In the old days, the only compost we could get was basically stacked manure. It was raw manure that was just piled up on the farm. And if we use that today, if I use manure, I have to do two points. If I'm growing an in-ground crop like a carrot, I have to wait 120 days from the application of raw manure to the soil to the harvest of that crop. If it's an above ground, like a tree fruit or a tomato, it's 90 days. That's meant to break the pathogen cycle on the product. But Good agricultural practices are becoming the science of new farming. We need our farmers to be more educated rather than less educated. And this is the pitch for UC. I'm a UC Santa Cruz guy. But the key is that agriculture uses every single path that's happening in this college. We use um, amazing computer technology, amazing sensor technology. We use business management practices. Every path leads to agriculture. And the, here's the problem. I'm 62. The average age of the American farmer is between 59 and 62. And so for every 25-year-old farmer we have in the room that might be working in agriculture, over here there's five 75-year-old farmers still working. And the nation is saying, we'll let you retire, but we really need 20 more years from you. Now, the problem with that is we don't have enough 25-year-olds going into agriculture. So I highly encourage everyone to see how their science or their practice can fit into the modality of agriculture because we need your help. We need your help really badly because we're actually in probably the greatest national security crisis this nation has ever faced. Our ability to feed the nation has been compromised to a point where we could face practically overnight collapse. And so we really need to think about it and think about agriculture as a career. We'll offer you good, hard work and dirt under your fingernails, but you'll eat great. Address the question about pathogens, and I think Scott's answer was a really, really good one, which is, um, you really need to know what compost is, right? And so when we talk about compost, we're talking about a product that has literally gone through the thermophilic decomposition phase, as in the little microbes in the soil have eaten everything and their metabolism has got really hot. And in that process where the compost gets really hot, it actually kills off of all the pathogens, right? So um, 
we did one of the offshoots of the Marin Carbon Project was this project called Thermopile, and it looked at the composting of human waste. And we used a technology out of Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, which is especially like a microchip, and it has a million sites that have half the DNA matches for all these tiny different microbes that could possibly make you sick. And you can test air or water soil samples on it. And essentially what it showed is that if you go through the thermophilic process completely, we all need to drink water, um, you kill off all of those pathogens and bacteria. And that has allowed, actually, some of that work has now gone on in Haiti where um, farmers are using composted human waste in things like barley crops and crops that are for, for grains. So when we talk about compost, we're not just talking about a rotting pile of organic matter, in which case that does has vectors of pathogens. We're really talking about a product that's gone through a certain phase that's been handled well and that is actually very, very safe and does not have um, pathogens or contaminants in it. Now you have to be careful because the compost can be re-inoculated. Like if you leave it out in a place where it might um, be subject to other pathogens or other diseases, they can pick it up. But the compost itself, if it's cured well and transported and kept well, it's going to be cleaner than anything else you put on there. And smell great. But one thing we can't clean up with composting, now there are a lot of systemic chemicals that persist through that whole process. And um, we've seen that in some municipal compost with a, a compound called chlorpyrimid, where it went all the way through the thermophilic process and still would kill plants um, when applied. So we got to be careful where the compost comes from. And for organic agriculture, we also can't use compost from dairy cows that have been treated with gro bovine growth hormone. So what can the university do? When we began to sort of make a move to try to encourage growing of food in land that could be potentially contaminated, we learned a lot about how weak the system is to do soil testing. So one of the things the university can do, and I love how Scott framed this. He said, because there's a shortage of farmers and things, we need to figure out how to, how to get the researchers um, factoring the kind of research trajectory they're on into this potential national security. I mean, talk about homeland security. How about our food and water security in our region, right? So we need researchers. Now, I would, I've been making the case um, on the campus from my perch as the Director of Urban Studies and Planning and in the Department of Communication, that it's not enough to be a, an engaged university. We need to be a rooted university. And by rooted, it means we need to step up and answer Scott's clarion call for research. So one way that we're doing that, and I'll just, like, quickly, is we're going to build a tent. Well, maybe. It's a testing <laughs> and evaluation network for toxicants. That's a mouthful, Right? a testing and evaluation network for toxicants. What's in the compost? Or if you divert stormwater to irrigate the food forest in an area that's potentially contaminated, uh, you know, the water running off the street, is that contamination getting into the fig tree? Well, yes, in fact, it is. Because we've instituted in, in Paul's site and, and elsewhere an edible plant tissue testing program that will begin to understand the uptake, and we have the science, and it's the most amazing science to understand from roots to shoots and the transport mechanisms. The lead is not getting into the fig fruit itself, it's getting into the leaves. So can we work with this? Can we do good science communication around that? So, and it's not just, the, it's so the tent would bring together on campus an otherwise fragmented capability 
to bring science to the people around testing. That would include chemical analysis, biological analysis, interpretive capacity, data integration, and science communication capacity that's sensitive to bringing this knowledge to the people. So that's the tent. We'll see if we can make progress on that. Justine, anything you want to add on the subject of compost? Well, I was going to say, not only do we need young farmers, but we also need more scientists thinking about soil health. Um, I think we kind of say, like, well, we just need to add compost. And everyone's like, that's great. But that's a real oversimplification. We need to learn and quantify how the microbes are doing what they're doing, how the type of organic matter and its composition affect how much carbon the soil actually holds on to. We need to know what practices best work in each region. And that's going to be a real challenge because we have a lot of different climates that we're thinking about, a lot of different vegetation systems and cropping systems. What works for Pablo in Mexico is not going to work for a grain farmer in Montana. And so we need to have scientists working with the farmers and actually quantifying this, identifying the best practices, and then trying to, to spread those practices. And so it's a really exciting time for to be a soil scientist because now we actually have the USDA is finally getting on board with this. The National Resources Conservation Service, the NRCS, they just created a new division of soil health. And the entire goal of this is to get farmers to start adopting these practices that will build soil health and include things like using compost and mulch and cover crops, um, no-till, uh, maximizing live roots, all of these things. Um, and so working with the farmers and, and doing it in a scientific way where we can actually quantify that and possibly get the farmers involved in carbon markets how can we actually make this economically viable, not just as like a, I feel good inside because I'm farming well, um, but you should get paid for that. And let's figure it out. I, I think one of the key things is organic has achieved one half of 1% of the USDA's research budget. I'm proud of that, but not really. Well, you know, we're actually getting a lot of questions about compost. My guess is we could spend all night talking about compost, but we said we're going to talk about four roles that uh, soil plays, and we've only talked about the first two, and the second one is waste recycling. But I want to say again, there are lots of organizations, lots of entities, and most of them are represented here today, who provide information and classes on composting, who um, are doing a series of seminars on food waste, um, you can find out all of them. You can at, grab me after the panel, and I can point you to the right person, but most of those people are here. That This is obviously a big issue, food waste and composting, and, and, but we're here tonight just to talk about and We're going to have food waste coming up in one of the panels down the road, but tonight we're really talking about soil and the multiple roles that soil plays, and so one of the next roles that we want to talk about is the role that it plays in terms of um, modulating water use and, and water retention and why, again, why we care why about healthy soil, particularly in the context of a drought and, and a very big one And before we get to the last role of climate change mitigation. So I know, Scott, you had a lot to say about water retention and use, so let's bring that back again. Well, one of the key things is, is the effect of when the rain hits. Now, we're in really good shape coming into an El Nino year because we had early rains that have brought up our native grasses. Um, 
and and the the alien species that have taken over our areas. But when we see these green hillsides, it's a really good deal. What scares me is the farmers that still plow up and down the hill because they have rills from the drainage that are that are running. In my work as a resource conservationist, I work with the National Resource Conservation Service as a local elected official of a resource conservation district. And our role is to help private landowners preserve their resources, and the key one is the, is the land. So the key, though, is that land holds the moisture. And the Rodale study that's been going on for 35 years, side-by-side trials with two conventional techniques and three organic techniques. And one of the key things that they've shown is that the, the production of both systems is almost equal. The cost of the chemical system is actually much higher, 40% higher over 35 years. But the real benefit is the increased organic matter in the soil in drought years. They, they show pictures of the, the corn that they're growing. Um, it's withered and it's almost dying on the conventional side, and they get 80% of the normal crop on the organic side. And it's because the, the biolife in the soil is building that matrix of organic matter and biolife that holds moisture and encourages the nutrients. That, that's excellent. Uh, thank you uh, for talking about that. And I know, Justine, you, you have a lot to say on sort of uh, the the issues vis-a-vis soil and water, water retention and use. So. Yeah, so not only do um, soils that are rich in organic matter ha- help hold that, that soil moisture, they basically work like a sponge, but in kind of the opposite case of what we're experiencing here, in places like the Midwest where they have huge rainstorms, a good healthy soil can absorb a lot of that excess water and you get less runoff less erosion and one of the big problems with erosion is that not only are you taking away your topsoil that healthy soil that you've been trying to build um, but you're taking nutrients um, and and so it's a huge pollution issue if your soil isn't responding to big fluxes of water in, in a good way which clearly is an issue for us right now since we're, we're you know, in an area that normally gets 10 inches of rain, we're, we're having a little bit of feast and famine with our water lately. And, and clearly the extent to which we improve our soil health will help us manage that water. And um, anyone else want to add anything on water, please? So this campus recently with the El Nino, not the most recent one, the one right before it uh, a couple weeks ago, has tried to cover the soil, the land with mulch. And the rain was so furious that there were 300 incidences of flooding on the campus. Enormously expensive. And when you look at the hydro sort of hydroscape of the campus, you'll notice they're tearing up the lawns, they're putting in bioswales, they're digging ditches to enable an otherwise impermeable surface, not only on the campus, but everywhere. The water can't get through it, all the concrete and the way it's laid out. So we're trying to address that. But they put wood chips on the surface. And when it rained, those wood chips floated and clogged drains. And so there's this struggle of not really, I mean, being well-intentioned and so forth. But this notion of hydro-modifying the landscape and, and thinking through at a watershed scale how to reclaim the soil's capacity to be a sponge is huge. And it's going to involve billions of dollars There's actually new legislation coming out from the Regional Water Quality Control Board saying that if you're going to develop 
and do higher density around transit. That's great. Let's do it. But you can't let any of your stormwater run off the property because we can't keep the creeks and the bay clean. And so we've got to arrest the flow of this contaminated stuff. And so people are trying to figure out how to do that intelligently. And it's a real challenge. Add one thing about compost. We've been talking a lot about it, and I got this phone call from a reporter who worked for the LA Times, and she was like, oh, I want to talk to you about compost. And I was like, great, what are you going to talk about? She's like, why don't we spray it over all the hillsides because El Nino is coming? And, and I said, that's a great idea. You should call somebody and tell them that. Um, so compost is used not only as a slow-release fertilizer, but also for erosion control and mitigation because not only does it add nutrients to the soil and carbon, it actually changes the structure of the soil. And Justine can talk more about this, but it essentially increases the infiltration. So the soil structure changes. It becomes more like a sponge and less like a flat pan, and water can sink in and then stay in there. So um, really what we're talking about is 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 resurfacing the I mean I think that's what Keith's talking about and we're really talking about resurfacing the planet in a way that can make it vibrant healthy sustainable and um you know good for us at the same time and I think that um mulch is it's one of those interesting things well it's like that's well-intentioned but you also have to look well how long is it going to take to break down and is that the appropriate use of this in this system so i don't want anybody to walk away tonight and just be like i'm going to go put compost all over everything because that's the best thing to do i mean no pay attention to your system and ask questions like when is it going to rain next how long before my roots come in and hold that down you know what's going on in my system what i love about listening to pablo talk is He's talking about responding to a system. And essentially, at the root of all these things, Michelle said it so well today. She said, oh, you're just feeding the system. You're just giving it food. And it's like, that's right. We're just talking about looking at a system, understanding what it needs, taking care of it, and managing for the outcomes that we want, knowing that it works a certain way and knowing that we can get it to work a certain way when we take care of it and and feed it. So um, I just want to put that out there. Don't, Don't take we need to get out of this way of thinking, which is like, this is the one thing I'm going to do and start looking and observing what's going on. I'd like to say one other thing. Um, One of the words that we've been using as a context for the work of kiss the ground and just seeing soil as this um, place to put focus and attention is the idea of regenerative Um, and coming out of a, a degenerative thinking Uh, Many of our systems that we've created are a degenerative system, meaning everything they produce doesn't go back and become a source product for something else. They become uh, toxicants that, you know, don't turn back into our mother earth. And compost, the way that I I see compost and the fact that we as as a society don't, you know, compost is not completely something that's happening is kind of like back in the day when we just thought we could throw garbage out of the window and that was fine. That was kind of like culturally accepted. So that the fact that we as a civilization say we're going to harvest all this green waste from nature and then throw it in a landfill with a bunch of other uh, toxicants and think that that's like a, a good responsible system. It's, it's kind of like it's a, cr- it's a crazy notion that that's kind of what we're thinking is appropriate in the year 2016. So I'm, I'm hopeful, and it just seems like there, there's, there needs to be a wake-up call that nature, since the beginning of time, has been 
growing, dying, and sourcing itself to become food for the next generation. And that essentially we've completely taken ourselves out of that system to where we're no longer relating to ourselves as part of nature. And, um, you know, compost is really a great systemic way that we can start relating to that we are nature and that we have to start operating and behaving as such. I think that there's also a really critical point that Keith touched on is we grew up in the last 50 to 100 years in a water abundant time, but it's really a climatic cycle where we could be entering a long time of water scarcity in a relative sense. But what we've done as modern people is we've accelerated the water's departure from our property. You know, paved surfaces, roofs with drains that go down to the street and then out. And what we're learning from from indigenous cultures is we need to become sophisticated water harvesters. So what he was talking about with the swales is we can reconform our soils so that most of the rainwater that falls in any given area can be penetrated in that area and actually can benefit crops. And that gives us a chance to change our mindset because where we've instituted water harvesting, for example, in an avocado grove, we've been able to cut the annual water use by 50% because we have supercharged the soil with, with sustainable water and organic practices to help hold it there. And in other forms of agriculture, we need to rethink what we're doing with the water rather than... I was just through the Salinas Valley where they've tiled the whole valley so that all the runoff water from the chemical farms goes into drains and is taken away to the rivers. But now the ecologists are saying, well, you're killing the rivers. We've got to stop doing this. And the farmers are going, well, what do we do with the water? So they have to rethink this process. But that's the second thing you can do at home. Start saving some rainwater. The simplest is just a bucket at your downspout. With a little more engineering, you can change the downspout to go into a barrel. Uh, we, we harvested 600 gallons of water in our little system with sort of scavenge components in a half-inch rain um, that we had on Sunday night. And uh, we, could, we could easily harvest 40,000 gallons of water on our property. A one-inch rain is, uh, on a property is 33,000 gallons on an acre of land. That's a lot of water. Uh, that's really powerful stuff. Uh, wait, so go ahead, Rylan. Just want to say, yeah. if you live in Los Angeles, I'm, I'm, I, I live in Los Angeles, and there's an amazing organization that we're partnered with called Tree People, and they sell very inexpensive rain harvesting barrels uh, that you can pick up at the farmer's markets. Uh, Andy Lipkiss is an amazing, amazing uh, thinker and um, mind around water conservation and how we can use our cityscapes to capture water so that we can actually sustain ourselves and operate off the what seems like a small amount falls every year but if we capture it appropriately um we can actually be quite um you know i I think it's right now what falls in los angeles could is about could be about 30 i think the statistic is 30 percent of the water that we're using could be harvested um from capturing the rainwater. So um, what I wanted to say is about the mulch was that it's usually at least on the range how you start building your soil. You can't really start moving piles of compost up uh, up the hill. I mean, you can, but 
hurts your back. So um, it's better to have the, the cattle and the, and the goats and the rest to, to do that for you. Um, and also, uh, a lot of these things are focused a lot on, on agricultural land, and I'm not trying to put it down or anything because it's, it's, it's extremely important. But, um, you know, land, you can either, you know, build cities or, you know, grow crops, maybe protect it, you know, national parks. But most of the land, it's going to be grazed or it's going to be used for grazing. So I think that has the biggest potential for, for, for harvesting all that water that could eventually infiltrate to the aquifers. And uh, that could be used for cities, for agriculture. You know, if you want to grow papayas in Southern California, you can do that with more water. Um, so um, it is important we understand that well, the, the importance of mulch, at least for me, it's that you create it by getting all those animals together and then really, really hitting the brush and getting all that litter on the soil and then hope that you don't get a Nino year that will kind of wash away all of that. But for the most part, you start getting this small rains that, you know, get the grasses growing and will hold all that soil there. And then you wait about seven years and you start getting some of those perennial grasses. You can choose uh, some of the plants that you have there and graze them so you can move the seeds from one area to the other. And you start, you know, designing that landscape that I was, uh, that I mentioned earlier. Um, Pablo, I just want to say I think that what you're talking about is so important and I, and I want to raise it because um, traditionally in our country, environmentalism has been really about conservation and that's been really great because we were able to preserve a lot of big open space and important lands. Um, but I think that it's time for us to talk uh, and really discuss a new paradigm where one where people and animals are actively on the land and um, what the some of the folks that I work for um, up in up in Marin, the co-founders of the Marin Carbon Project, they initially kicked all the cows off their land. They evicted the rancher when they brought the property, and they said, "We're going to turn it back into wilderness." You know, our 300 acres of Marin is going to go back to wilderness. Well, what happened is all the coyote brush and all the poison oak started taking over and essentially their ecosystem started collapsing and they lost a lot of their meadows and they lost a lot of their wildflowers and they, they were trying to create habitat for sage grouse and they actually did the opposite. There was, there was no habitat for, for these nesting ground birds um, because there were no grasses. And so they spent two years mowing, weeding, pulling, nothing. And, and it wasn't until someone came back and said, you know, have you thought about maybe grazing it again? that they really looked at bringing animals back onto the land. And so um, bringing animals back onto the land and grazing, as Pablo's talking about specifically, so that they, you know, they went out and they grazed when the annuals were about to seed. So they ate those seeds and then they left it when the perennials were going to seed. So the perennials could seed. And now what they have is the biggest concentration of endangered wildflowers that anyone has ever seen in the county of Marin in 100 years. So that grazing system has actually helped restore many of the other functions of that land. So I don't want to get into a no cows or cows debate, but I think it's important for us to look at the ways that we can engage actively and have active land management that actually furthers our environmental goals. And it's really what I, part of what I love about the soil and food movement is it's about that. People eat 
you know, we also, we also, and there's things that we have to do with these and there's decisions that we can make and we, we engage with animals. And so I think that what I love so much about the meta part of this conversation is we're talking about how we as humans can be good for our environment, not just that we're bad, not just that we have to stop doing things, but how the things that we do can be good for it. And that means stepping in and taking active responsibility and, and doing, um, I think, what you see a lot of folks here up on this panel uh, doing. I'm also going to make a plug for government really quick. Um, Scott here is part of this really secret organization, <laughs> called the, um, which he can talk about, called the Resource Conservation District. And um, they, I think, are incredibly powerful groups, and they're who we work for. So when people despair and they say, oh, government's never going to support this, we're pretty much, we're set up to support this. The USDA, with the NRCS, with the resource conservation districts, um, are ready to go. We're ready, we're ready to roll this out. We're ready to have regenerative agriculture come back on the landscape. The governor has $55 million in his new budget for healthy soils. And he has $100 million in there for cow recycle, a lot of which will hopefully go to new composting facilities. So, um, And we have these incredible people in the resource conservation um, districts who are there working with people on the land, getting money, funding, you know, teaching, offering resources. So really, in, in terms of the question of what we can do and what you can do in this room, is you can find those farmers in your community that are growing in this way. And you can support them by buying those products. And it's not just food. It's also the fiber that you wear, you know, wools, um, uh, cottons, all these other things. Um, and ideally, you know, other materials that you're buying can, can um, come. So remember to use your consumer power in this as well. Oh, um, I just want to say about the, the livestock and whatever. The biggest problem is not overgrazing but over-resting the land. And that's how we get all this brush. And, you know, it's not that you're against brush, but grass is better at harvesting carbon and water and everything else. So the problem is not the, that animals, that we have a lot of animals. In fact, you know, I only have 30 sheep, you know, 50 sheep and 2,400 acres to graze, you know. So we need more animals, yeah. Thank and, you. Yeah, go, David. Yeah, I just want to play off both, both of you guys. I mean, I think um, that, you know, Carl, what you're saying, like, I mean, we, we, we are, you know, um, human beings, like, we, we are organisms of the earth. You know, we are part of nature, as Rylan's saying. We have a choice what we put in our mouth, you know, and, we, and this choice of what we eat creates the world we live in. Um, and I've coined this term the regenitarian diet, which basically is if you do choose to eat meat, and the reality is, is, like, I mean, you don't have, these animals are necessary. That's something to understand. Like, these animals are necessary to interact with these ecosystems. I mean, these ecosystems without animals, just, they, they fall apart. And you don't have to eat their meat. You could just drink their milk. You could leave them alone. But, you know, re, you know regardless, I mean, they're necessary, right? And, you know, and, and, and Pablo and, and other ranchers are, are, you know, managing them correctly so that they don't overgraze or undergraze or they're, you know, you know interacting with, the environment in a responsible way that promotes ecosystem health. And the regenitarian um, concept is that where vegans and omnivores come together and, you know, unite against the CAFO machine, the industrial ag machine. And, and the idea, especially like when you're, when you're buying, if you do choose to eat milk, milk dairy, eggs, 
or, or me, I mean, me in particular, that, you know, that's a huge choice about the kind of world you're making. Are you buying from someone like Pablo? You know, the, the animals live on the land. They're interacting in this very healthy, regenerative way. Or are they degenerating the world? Which, you know, unfortunately, if you're buying just the cheap meat, you know, that's what's happening. I mean, it's, it's a disaster. It's insanely cruel, and it's totally degenerative. degenerative. Yeah. And I would just like to add that uh, also by moving your animals through the native vegetation, you are creating a local product. You know, it's not New Zealand lamb. It's lamb that's been eating sagebrush, and it's been eating manzanitas, and it's been eating oak leaf, and you are creating a flavor of your own meat, and it's going to be different. It's not grass-fed, it's range-fed meat, and it's when you go to Montana, you're going to try Montana lamb, and it's going to taste different, you know? They, they don't have to eat orchard grass or oats or, you know, there's a bunch of different things, and then the chefs can come in and come up with different plates and, you know, caring for that product that's been cared since birth, in my case. I think there's a key point that that agriculture is the management of ecology, you know, and, and it's something that we forget, that agriculture really is the management of this ecology. And we've kind of created a battle where we're opposed to the ecology, and and it's it's happening right now in some of the food safety uh, initiatives. The, the Leafy Green Agreement is a little scary because it's created these dead zones around the farms where they don't want any habitat or any wildlife because of the threat of, of that contamination. But it's not the best way to go. That habitat is a filter strip. You know, with your, your garden in San Diego, what we need to do is we need to use nature to filter the pollutants out of the runoff water. So we use in, in the Soil Conservation Service does what's called a grassy swale that, that filters the pollutants out before it releases it into the creek or into the agricultural application. So we have tools. We have amazing tools that we can use. I want to say one thing, one question. It's, it's, it went from uh, famine to feast on questions. I can't even keep up with them now. But there's a question specifically on sort of water recapture and, and, and with respect to something that was raised earlier, and that's rainwater recapture. So sorry, I have my font really tiny here. But the question is, who's we? What's your take on who can and needs to act on rainwater harvesting? And I'm sure everybody has an opinion on that. But who, who can, should... Uh, try to collect rainwater. I mean, my answer is everyone, but anyone have anything more precise than that? <laughs> well, not, not everyone has access to, to rainwater. You know, if you live in an apartment building, it's probably really difficult to harvest rainwater. But if there is a, a spout coming down and you can put even a five-gallon bucket under it, it's insane how fast a five-gallon bucket fills up. And then, like, I use that water to water my houseplants. I use that water for my tropical fish because it's the cleanest water I can get my hands on. So everyone can play a part in water harvesting, but those of us who have a source, especially a downspout from a roof, but also on farms, you know, we can craft the land to harvest the water, but each of us can play a small part in water harvesting. It's just amazing, you know, how that rain gauge fills up. It's like, whoa. You know, I set a bucket out that I forgot about and came back and it had three gallons of water in it after our three-inch rain. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll use that. I know you wanted to say something, Keith, on the subject, so just generally, but go ahead, please. Well, I'll follow up on this. So the person in the apartment building might not be able to harvest water in the apartment, but they can participate in a community garden and sculpt the land, like you said, craft the land. 
I want to give a quick example. Use the soil-water interaction as an example of um, a science-society connection here. What I mean by that is um, one of the things that we've been... Right here on this campus, right now, there's concern about um, pollution getting into the ocean uh, from the runoff from the campus. And so at SIO, they've built a bio-filter. That's an engineered system with soil and plants and rocks to intercept the flow of water and to remediate uh, the water, which uh, they're testing that. And it works. If you do it right, it works. And a certain combination of plants and certain soil type, that, that has to go into place. But what I want to say with the Science Society connection is we're trying to be intentional about bringing those lessons out into the community. So the woman, um, Lisa Levin, who's a professor at SIO and is doing that research, is also doing research in the community with a bioswell at the base of a food forest. And I think that's a really important uh, trajectory, and it, it enables us to um, sort of dial the science in that we can uh, put to good use. The well, last thing I'll, I'll say here is, I think, Kayla, you were saying that it's very important to um, not just sort of think one solution fits all, or, right? So we have to have more of a holistic perspective. So when you begin to look at bioswales and things like that in the community in, say, uh, southeastern San Diego in the watershed, very interesting possibilities when you start to think of the place as a district. Because go back to the example of the legislation that I said, that if you want to do high-density development, you've got to keep all your stormwater on your property. Very expensive to do that. It's a one-size-fits-all. You've got to build underground vaults. You've got to capture it in cisterns or whatever. But if they can meet 60% of that requirement and do off-site mitigation somewhere else in the watershed, now we're talking. So we've got this scientist helping us document the efficacy of this bioswale, this sort of soil-water interaction to the benefit of the food forest in quantitative terms. And now we can start talking about a green infrastructure improvement district. Okay, you need to do, a, you need to do off-site compliance because we want higher density around the transit corridors, right? And if we're making a law that makes it onerous or for the developers to even begin thinking about that, then we're screwed there too because they go to greenfield development. We're spreading more impermeable pavement everywhere and so forth. So we make the argument, take a watershed-based approach to this, be intelligent about how we're doing our investments, and, uh, and build the science to enable that to happen. Great. Thank you. That's fantastic. Keith, what you were saying really reminds me of the first principle of biodynamic agriculture, which is just observe your system, right? Observe it. Where does the water fall? Where does it run? Where does the sun touch when it comes up in the morning? Where does it touch when it goes down? How long does the land, you know, come under sun? How long on rain? And, and this idea that that we act as observers and then have a relationship with this place. And I think that is so fundamental in, in our approach today. And just to bring it back to soil, understanding at the same time how it works and knowing the science of it and then being able to observe the whole system, I think between those two things, we have everything that we need to really restabilize our climate and to have a healthier society from a physical food perspective. Yeah. 
So we have a little question uh, before we get to our final topic of the day. Uh, and it was actually directed uh, at what you had to say, Pablo, about, well, then should everyone have a backyard goat? And, and, and my answer is yes, because I actually do have a backyard goat and I live in the city and you too can have goats. Okay. I'm now a registered dairy gr- uh, goat breeder. Yes. I breed several kids every year. We give them to farmers. They, they learn how to raise them. Uh, we get milk from them. And at my house, I, I, I too am a vegan. I, I don't eat them. Uh, but they do a lot of good work for me. They eat all of my vegetable matter. They create my compost. They fertilize my yard. They clear some of the areas of the grass. So yes, please do get a backyard goat. So we, <laughs> we've talked about the three roles that, that the, about soil as an, an organism habitat, you know, that it hosts this world under the soil that's not just as big, but bigger than what we see above it, that it, um, can recycle waste in a way that's far better than simply taking it and mixing it in with the inorganic matter in a landfill somewhere in a way that causes all sorts of problems. And we also talked about the role that healthy soil can play in in modulating water and using it the most efficiently, which is critical for us. But finally, we're going to get to the subject of what probably got you here tonight, and that is ultimately the role that soil, healthy soil, can play in mitigating climate change by sequestering carbon. So I want to start by asking Justine to talk a little bit. Oh, Pablo, look, everybody's fired up on this one. You see? No, I just uh, get two goats. Two goats, yeah, we, yeah, right? That's true, because you know what? They don't like to be alone. That's right. I'm not saying get a boy and a girl. That's a whole other situation. Maybe someone else down the road has the boy. I have two girls. That, that's totally manageable. But yes, they, they, they need company. If you want a lot of goats, get a boy and a girl. Okay. All right. So let's talk about climate change mitigation. Yeah. So I, I already gave you some numbers about how, how big potential soil management has for offsetting our, our current carbon emissions. So when we're thinking about... Uh, kind of basically saving the world with soil. Um, one of the, the big things that we're, we're, we're looking at with climate change and kind of the current models that are saying this is what our future projection looks like. And it's scary. If, if we do business as usual, we're hitting four degrees centigrade higher than average. Um, in the not-too-distant future. Um, and so the, the alternative pathways all are assuming that we will have other means of addressing um, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, of taking it out. And so that includes things like direct carbon capture, um, actually taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere using chemical reactions, of using bioenergy with carbon capture. So you, you grow plants, burn them, capture their emissions before they, they actually leave, and collect that carbon, and then take that carbon and stick it down like in an abandoned oil well. These, these, these are kind of like the geoengineering things. But that's what our models currently rely on to, to be a major role. And, and, so, and they're not there yet. Like We cannot quickly build all of these, these facilities. And so I really see farmers as kind of the first responders for climate change. We have the tools already. It's not going to take decades to get this ramped up. We we know what we can do. And and if it's five years, even ten years, that's huge. We can do a lot in ten years um, in improving the soils and and actually making a difference in in the concentration in the atmosphere. So, So I have to ask this question 
not because it's my opinion, but because it's a question that often gets asked, which is, don't we need industrial farming to feed the world, right? We hear that a lot. It, you know, a lot of people are saying it. Is it so? And I think many people probably have an opinion on that, but, but, but anyone, please chime in. If we're talking about doing something that's different, what about that issue? Anyone? Well, large-scale conventional agriculture is actually a great pathway to destroy the world right now. Um, and, but they do say that if we went organic, we'd all die. Well, it's a little difficult to say that because chemical agriculture is less than 100 years old, um, and it won't last to be more than 100 years old because of the toxicity that it's bringing to our bodies and our environment. But organic agriculture, or what we really should be talking about is regenerative agriculture uh, that builds and rebuilds the ecology, can feed the world, and we'll also have to change our, our dining practices somewhat. And that's probably one of the biggest keys. As we talked about confined animal feeding operations and eating too much meat, is probably one of the other health hazards that we have. Too much sugar, too much of, of anything can be toxic when it really comes down to it. So it's an alteration of all of our systems thinking, both our body systems thinking and our agricultural systems thinking. And I think fundamentally, organic agriculture has to be prepared to take over from chemical agriculture. Sometime in the next 15 to 20 years, we're going to see it collapse. And it won't be a long collapse. It'll be a very precipitous drop. And that's, we need to be prepared to take over. Um, and the organic farmers that we have in the country now are basically independent researchers because we're getting so little support from the government. Imagine how much progress we could be making if 50% of our research dollars, actually your dollars, went into researching regenerative rather than just following the path of destructive. I'd love to just follow that up. Thank you so much. Um, for those of you that saw the film Interstellar, uh, the beginning of that film, you know, we kind of saw that film and thought it was going to go outer space, but the beginning of that film was very telling to this topic, that essentially they were living in a world where soil was, or dirt, the sand, the, you know, the small particles of uh, soil were in the air because soil was dying. And essentially they said, we don't need more people studying technology, we need people farmers, we need people who are taking care of the earth, we need good land stewardship. And really, if we really took a look Especially, you know, we're here at a university and there's a lot of young people here and, you know, people are going into business and looking at what they want to solidify their lives doing. And it's like if we really took a look at a lot of the business ideas that we think that we're going to, you know, give ourselves a, a, a smack on the shoulder or a, a pat on the shoulder, it's like oftentimes exploiting the earth, paying people a, a, a poor wage to extract that thing from the earth, create a product that people don't need that then they throw away in six months. And then we think, oh, we made money on that and we, we go, oh, you know, good, good, good business, good job. But it's like, no, that, what, we, what we need is, you know, as, as was, was spoken earlier, we need a new generation of regenerative farmers, people who are good land stewards and really can get what 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 else are we doing with our what else are we doing with our lives besides taking care of this beautiful green planet that is so beautiful and so precious 
and you know, in the name of progress, we continuously destroy, destroy, destroy. And here, you know, the the opportunity really is to wake up and go, wow, you know. And the message in Interstellar was stay, you know, stay and take care of this beautiful planet, this beautiful green um, space that we have, because you know, it's it's the one that we have. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm very, very passionate and inspired about young people seeing the opportunity of a beautiful, uh, virtuous, uh, extraordinary life of being a good land steward. And, you know, that's what I've given my life to, is to inspiring that generation of people to take that on. And I'm, I'm taking it on myself. Well, not just farmers, though. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. Farmers and, and, and agreeing with what bo- uh, both of our academics yeah. on the panel said, we also need Science. scientists. We Ranchers, need researchers. Yeah. We, need, we need academics who support what the farmers are doing. And that will bring research dollars. That will bring money to the uh, organic or regenerative farming techniques. And I think it's important that uh, lots of different people, smart young people in the future, are paying attention to these issues. So, David, yeah, please. Yeah, just to the, you know, the notion that, you know, we can't feed the world organically. I mean, right now, um, you know, corn's our number one uh, crop followed by soybeans. Um, you know, uh, I think over 40% now of our corn is going into ethanol for, for cars, and it's a complete boondoggle. It's almost a negative energy return. Um, you know, another 40-plus percent is going to animal feed. Over 80% of soy is animal feed. I mean, what we need to do is, you know, stop the, you know, the ethanol fuel boondoggle and, you know, reduce our consumption of meat to, you know, a sustainable regenerative level um, that's not competing with primary food crops for, for people. And, it, you know, it's easy. I mean, it's, you know, and, and, and we can easily feed the world organically. Well, we had a question from the audience on farming, and I'm glad we're sort of focused back. And, Scott, it looks like you want to talk. So uh, the question is, how much can, can farming practices, which recognize what we're talking about, how much can they actually be scaled up to take the place of industrial agriculture? Is, is it feasible? Can it happen? The scalability is over 100%. Every practice that we have is matched in organic practices and more sophisticated and produces better results and more cost-effective and less pollution. Um, So yes, the scalability is better than 100%. We can do a lot better because what we'll also do is not be monoculturalist, we'll be polyculturalist, we'll be growing a layer of different crops on land that use the resources and the water even more efficiently. But I want to make one very important point. We don't just need the young people to be farmers. Mid-career changers and retirees are some of the very best farmers. (laughs) You know, bring it on. You're never too old. If if I'm the average age of American farmer for that 25-year-old we have, remember the 75-year-olds, I met a guy the other day, he's 89, and he's driving a tractor full-time on a farm in Vermont. Cool guy. Yeah, go ahead, please. Um, I recently read a book called The Art and Science of Shepherding, and I think it's uh, one of the most interesting things I've read um, about livestock in general. So if anybody has livestock, go and get that book. Uh, and um, basically, it's just this research that um, a French um, researcher uh, does in, in, in France with the, with the shepherds in the, in the region. And what he finds out is that by herding your animals, you stimulate their appetite in, so they eat more, so they can compensate the lack of quality of the feed that usually uh, um, we have in ranges, and that's why they tell us, you know, don't 
take your animals to the range because it's not very uh, nutritious. But in fact, what you do is you hurt them, you stimulate their appetite, and they end up eating a lot more. So they compensate the lack of quality in the quantity of feed. So you get sheep to eat, you know, three kilos at six pounds of um, six pounds of, of, of forage, whereas if you would feed them alfalfa hay, that would be about two, uh, no, four pounds. I'm thinking in kilos. Um, so yeah, we don't have to force feed the grains or whatever it is that they feed them. Uh, we have another question from the panel or from our audience. Which uh, And this one I think we'll have Kala answer, which is, uh, what are some examples of industrial farmers that are implementing these methods to help regenerate their soil? And I think you have some answers to that, Kala. Yeah, so, um, you know, and Ryland and I talk about this all the time. We are, we're not trying to create a movement that says, you're bad, stop. What we're trying to do is say, look at this and how it works and how it's good. And so... Um, we work, I especially work a lot with people who are maybe not your average organic farmer, although I eat from organic farmers. So um, a couple of things on the question of, of examples. There's a large uh, rancher up in Northern California in Modoc County. It's actually the single largest wool uh, supplier coming out of the state of California. He's going to vote for Donald Trump, and he's going to be our first carbon farmer. Um, for a large sheep ranch, and Pendleton's going to purchase his wool. And so, you know, he's been doing the lease BLM land, pull as much, you know, feed as he can off of that extractive thing for years. And when he saw what compost did for his forage production, he went ahead and switched right over. And luckily, Pendleton wanted to help, and they um, paid for him to build his new big compost pile out there. So I think um, we're seeing... And that's just that's a great example, but we're seeing other examples of this where um, large-scale agricultural producers, or I guess you could say in this case mid-scale agricultural producers, are making this switch because they have support from their buyers and because they really see the benefits immediately. So you don't have to be a label in order to do this. You don't have to be blank to do this. This is something that everybody can do. And so... Um, to be more technical about it, the uh, NRCS, which is the branch of the USDA, we keep talking about. And I'm, how many people have heard about the NRCS? Just in this audience. Wow, that's pretty good. Um, I hadn't, I didn't know about them <laughs> until a couple of years ago. They, so they have a, they have their conservation practice list. They now have a new tool. It's called Comet Planner. C O M E T Planner. And there's a list of 34 practices that have soil carbon benefits. And you can go on and you can put in where your farm is. You can put in your zip code. It'll pull up your soil type. You can say, I want to cover crop this system, this many acres. I want to do rotational grazing on this many acres. I want to switch over from chemical fertilizers to compost on this many acres. And it will tell you exactly how much carbon you're going to save from that, at least the estimates that we have. And if you want to look at the research that's underneath that, you can go and find that. Um, some of the organizations I work for, we helped build that tool because what we're trying to do is make all of these practices accessible and scalable within the existing infrastructure that this country has for agriculture. And so we're building off the backs of a very successful movement, which is the organic movement, but we're also coming in and saying, 
we need to do this now. And if, and if you can start sequestering carbon in six months after you put compost on the ground, how do you support that compost being made and getting out there as soon as possible? So NRCS is definitely a really big ally for us. The Resource Conservation District's amazing folks there. And you can look up that Comet Planner tool. And that's our sort of answer for scaling. We're saying anybody can do this. It's accessible. And um, if you have questions about it, I'll talk to you more about it afterwards. Yeah, I, I know you want to say something, Keith. This issue of scaling, clearly we need to scale. We also need to federate because what this conversation begins to beg is the kind of units that we'll be working with. And Pablo, I was really struck by what you said about the food tasting like sage or, you know, um, the local. So the localism is really powerful. We could have another whole session just on what that means. And I just want to say something about, uh, real quickly how we think we can change the world. And what's coming across here is you're hearing me advocate for the university's role in science. You hear us advocating for the farmers of the world unite. You hear nonprofit organizations and so forth. Clearly, it's going to take a village to do this, right? But at what scale and where? And so we've been thinking a lot about this in the, at the university, and we've boiled it down to kind of um, what we're really trying to get at here is healthy places, healthy people. Healthy places, healthy people, right? And part of that requires thinking about what unit. Now, we've been basically accepting this premise, and you tell me whether you agree with this or not, but that to be a full human being, we need to be in healthy relationships with one another, loving, trusted relationships with one another, but with the land at the same time, right? That we're social animals, so the first principle here I think we're getting at, healthy places, healthy people, is that, yes, we need equity and justice and equitable and loving relationships with one another, but the land, you know, Aldo Leopold, let's not forget that. It's part of what we are as a species, and we neglect it at our peril. And Scott, you know, you're scaring the crap out of us a little bit. I thought we had a little more time than, uh, and then the, this catastrophic collapse, but what it suggests a lot of talk about poop tonight. I don't know if you noticed that. I'll just end with this. What it suggests is that we really need to begin thinking about the integrity of our regional ecosystems and the localism that that implies and a new kind of ecological polity such that people are once again affectionate not just for one another but also the land. Wendell Berry writes about this in the most eloquent ways. He talks about it all turns on affection. The only way you're going to get people caring about land is if they're vested in it. The only way we're going to do that is by localizing our economy. And, and I'll end by just saying we're beginning to try to, you know, if you, if you look at the scientific community, you'll see language like chans, coupled human natural systems. You'll see the National Science Foundation now funding things like, okay there, smarty pants, you people, get your act together, go out and study not just food, not just water, not just energy, but wait for it, the food, energy, water, trilemma. Okay, this speaks to bioregionalism. This speaks to getting it together with your watershed. Now, the bioregion is what you understand to be your home, not just the city. We're not going to solve this just by putting photovoltaics on the tops of our buildings. You know, we have to be in sync, urban, rural, urban, peri-urban, working landscapes. That speaks to bioregionalism. And the other, the other concept that we can throw out here, and I'll end, is I love this, 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 this language, rooted community. 
rooted university, rooted community, rooted, and you'll hear it, you're, you're hearing it come up. Anyway, that's good. Anybody want to follow up on that? If not, I have more questions. Yeah, please. I just want to say thank you, because I didn't think that I would get to be on a panel so quickly where we actually are talking about relationships. Because I think that's actually what it comes down to at the end of the day, is how do we relate to each other and how do we relate to the living things on this planet? And um, when I talk about compost being food or being love, people sort of roll their eyes. But I think ultimately we're talking about what kind of relationship do we want to be in. Um, Yeah, so thank you for bringing that up, Keith. Sorry, I had to go to the bathroom, so I kind of missed something. I'm coming back. I'm not sure what we're talking about besides... Relationships. Uh, relationships. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, I don't know. If Tell I'm, us about yours. <laughs> I'm married for five years. It's really with great. I land, love my life. With the earth. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Yeah, reverence. Um, just the deepest love and appreciation. The remembrance for all that sustains me. Um, in this physical reality comes from the soil and yeah, without love, all of our actions will not make the difference. Um, and to, yeah, to the idea of relationship, um, yeah, if there's not love in between that relationship, we're not going to continuously make, uh, or take the right action. Um, and yeah, uh, I'm, I'm moved and inspired to be here, and it's been an exquisite year. 2000, I mean, we're in 2016, but 2015 was actually the International Year of Soil. And that was, that was the United Nations had declared that, and, uh, you know, we don't necessarily know if it was that strategic, or, but we, 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 we took that note from the universe, and we ran with it. And there was some really remarkable successes that took place in 2015 in relationship to soil. And one was we launched the soil story uh, and in support of Governor Brown's Healthy Soil Initiative, which Calla kind of spoke on some, uh, some money that's been allocated towards uh, composting and towards uh, regenerative agriculture or agriculture that is you know, headed towards building soil. And, you know, another huge success that happened in 2015 was we went to COP21, uh, the climate change conference in, in Paris. And Cala and our whole team went. It was about eight of us that went. And what we got to capture on film was the French Minister of Agriculture um, on the 2nd of, 2nd of December uh, basically put in writing this beautiful presentation and initiative called Four for a Thousand. And basically what they are taking on and what they were declaring to the world at COP21 is that carbon sequestration and mitigating atmospheric carbon through building soil carbon is a real thing and that here is a protocol to do it and the way we're going to do it is we're going to build 0.04% per year on all agricultural soils and this is how we're going to do it, and we're inviting the world to come on board and to sign this, um, this agreement, and 25 other countries signed on to four for 1,000. And so that was a huge, huge victory in COP21 because as, we, as 
we're starting to understand is that we can't reduce ourselves out of this calamity or this crisis. We simultaneously have to draw down a large portion of that atmospheric carbon and soil is our number one is the number one game in doing that. And, you know, young people, all people have to start gauging our lives to how, how is my life and my participation in the world making that happen? And that's, that's what's exciting, you know, that's, that's what's exciting for me to live a life of that's what, that's what I'm using my life for. And so, so that, I think that's why we're, we're all here. I love that we ended on relationships. Who knew we would get here? But fundamentally, that is what we're talking about, which is... Yeah, we, uh, you know, it's our relationship, it's, it's farmer to scientist to community, the, the decisions that we make as consumers have huge impacts on a whole world that we may not be thinking about as we're putting that lovely little bite into our mouth, but we should, and we can, and we're all connected, and thanks for coming, everyone, good night. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.